This is another iRaw podcast. We podcast to make the world a better place for animals. In the Canadian justice system, animals' interests are rarely represented. But the lawyers at Animal Justice fight to give them a voice in court and the political system. This is the Pawn Order Podcast, and these are their stories. Okay, everyone, welcome to episode 48 of the Paw and Order podcast, joined today by my co-host, Peter Sankoff. Hey, Peter. Hey, how are you? I'm pretty good. I just got back from actually a a bit of a vacation, which was nice, and um, actually didn't check my email much the whole time, which hasn't happened in over a year. So pretty happy about that. Uh, How are you doing? Well, good for you. You know, another vacation. No, I know you're not always vacationing. You deserve a vacation. It's just, Camille, that I never get a vacation. Never. It's just work, work, work. Really? You're not going to Mexico in a couple weeks? That's not what I heard. Uh, That's just a vicious rumor. Just a vicious rumor. As it turns... Yeah, well, okay. Well, we'll see. Maybe, maybe I'm going for a vacation. It's been a very long month. I call January hell month. It's just, it's the worst. It's, it's hell month. It literally is. It's like, uh, you just, because if you're a law professor, you mark all through Christmas, literally. And then you go back in January and you have all these new courses you have to deal with. And then there's just like, for some reason, I have like 20 to 30 responsibilities that all pop up in January. Every so, single uh, year, huh? It's just insane. Yeah. It's like, there's just a bunch of things that it's, I won't bore you with all the stuff, but essentially all the aspects of the university year that are sort of quiet for quite a long period of time really pop up in January. And as a result, like I've got the Gale Cup again this year for my last time. So we've been really busy with that for prepping for that for mid-February and yeah, just a ton of other things. I mean, the only bright light in the day, I think Camille is when I'm teaching my animals in the law class. Oh, what? This podcast isn't the bright light in your day? I'm I'm kind of insulted. I I thought that this would have been the highlight of your week. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, I suppose it's definitely a highlight. Actually, I'm excited to speak with you again. It's been so long. I know. I know. So actually, the reason I mentioned that I took some time off is that listeners may have noticed that we sort of skipped a week. So instead of a two week schedule, we had three weeks between episodes in the last sort of round. And the reason for that is just to accommodate some some scheduling issues that we both had. So uh, we are back now. We're back on our every two week schedule, barring any other unforeseen circumstances. But as usual, (laughs) things have been busy. Barring unforeseen circumstances like... uh like my trip to Mexico. But uh, yeah, that, that, that we'll, we'll have to talk about scheduling, but I, I do think we can stay on our regular two-week schedule after this. Good, good. Well, uh, it's been busy over in Toronto too. We've been working on a whole bunch of things, some of which, if you're listening to this, you may have already seen online, but we put out the dates of our next animal law conference, September 11th to 13th in Toronto at the University of Toronto. So really excited about that. The, the call for submissions is now open. 
you can't register yet, that's not available for another few months. But if you're interested in speaking, please visit the website CanadianAnimalLawConference.ca. You can learn more about how to submit, what we're looking for, and uh, we're, we're really just welcoming as many submissions as possible focused on Canadian animal law topics. But international stuff is good, too. We, we think it's important to take a global perspective and that a lot of the work being done internationally in other countries, other provinces, uh, just around the world is super important for us all to be talking about and sharing. So please it, check that out. Are you excited for that, Peter? It seems, it seems like just yesterday... That we were in Halifax doing the uh, first animal law conference, and like here we are, coming around to the second. It's really uh, very exciting. It's it's exciting that this sort of thing continues to uh, go on this regular schedule. I don't know how you guys do it because I'm exhausted just hearing about it. But that has to do with my <laughs> January. But otherwise, uh, yeah, very excited. Yeah, no, it's and even be good. more excited about April. April is going to be even more exciting. Yeah, April 25th, we've released uh, some additional information about the gala that we're hosting in Toronto. It's an illumination gala. The theme is illumination. We're, we're shining a spotlight on the issue, having bright people there to talk about the importance of protecting animals in this day and age and the, the links between the state our world is in and what we can do to protect animals in the meantime. And some of the solutions that we're all working on together. So very excited about that. If you visit animaljusticegala.ca, you can check out a little bit of additional details. We'll open up registration pretty soon, too. And we'd love to have all of you there buy a ticket, come party with us. Uh, there's going to be lots more info to talk about about the gala. We're working very hard on it. We've got an amazing host committee with some really cool, smart people who are awesome at organizing events and finding amazing silent auction prizes. So I know it's going to be a good one. And you'll be I'm here for it. I'm particularly excited. Yeah, I'm coming in for it. I have two parties at once because I have a book launch too, which, uh, which some friends from from Pawn Order and elsewhere will be coming to. I, but I have a book launch two nights before the gala. So it's also taking place in Toronto. So I'm really excited about that. I get to launch my new evidence book and uh, and at the same time celebrate with all the wonderful people who support animal justice, which is really the best part of the gala. Uh, you know, it's great to celebrate animal justice, but just getting together with all kinds of people who care so much about animals is really the high point. Absolutely. It's celebrating our supporters who really are the heart and soul of animal justice because we couldn't do that work without uh, without them and without you. That is absolutely true. Fantastic stuff. I'm excited. Now, there is some other exciting news on our end. Uh, you, you'll notice uh, you'll notice it's very difficult. If anyone's noticing, I am I am I am. I am not using my co-host's name. I am trying to hold myself back from using my co-host's name. <laughs> the reason for that will become clear <laughs> in a few minutes' time. But for now, let me just say, you, that um, we've had some other interesting news. Now, this is a long-running story. It's like several months that this has been – months. I think it's years, isn't it? This has been going on for far too long. Yeah, no, it really yes. has been. If you follow yes. Peter or myself on Twitter, you may have seen some tweets about this. And, you know, if you ever go to the website CNN.com or a variety of other websites, you may have or actually others. seen what we're talking about. So um, there is an ad going around with a picture of me and Peter in the ad. But the ad's not for animal justice. The ad's for, well, some sort of like, lawyer marketing agency seems to have put the ad up and it says things alternately like 
rates of 2020 rates of top Toronto lawyers may surprise you or see the hourly rates of lawyers from and it depends on what city you're in so it, it populates we are that. we are international because i've oh, seen yeah. top lawyers in miami top lawyers in new york this other person and i this blonde-haired lawyer and i that's me get get around apparently, apparently my co-host and i get around a lot because apparently we are the top lawyers in new york montreal toronto edmonton miami i've seen richmond virginia London, and it's UK. always the same San it's Francisco. always the same picture of us in our robes taken from from 2015 yeah, and the, the number Supreme of Court. people i i've generally ignored it the the thing i find particularly annoying is i just get so many emails tweets facebook messages like oh my god look what they're doing with your picture so Finally, my co-host there decided to do something about it. She went on Twitter and obtained the advice of the Twitterati. Yeah, that, that's right. So um, it, it is annoying. <laughs> and I get so many emails and direct messages about it, too. Someone sends it to me pretty much every day. And it's like, yeah, I know. I mean, thanks, everyone who sent it along because it's, it's funny. But, you know, um, so it looks like we're going to be investigating what we can do to get the ad taken down, first of all, but also address some of the images around uh, copyright that arise from the use of the photo of us that I own the copyright uh, slash animal justice owns the copyright of. So uh, we'll keep you posted on what comes of this ad. And I think we can also insert, uh, I have so many different versions of it, I'll have to choose which city, but I think we can also insert it into the show notes so that you folks can see what we're actually talking about if you haven't had the pleasure of seeing our images used to promote lawyer services. Although I, I haven't seen it recently um, because they, 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 well, I don't know if they took it down or they have some sort of rotation, but the next person who sent it to us had this real, you know, funny picture of like some glass mannequin head with a wig on it as apparently being symbolic of the lawyer's rates in Winnipeg or wherever it was. Wasn't that crazy? Oh, yeah, yeah. That was that was weird. They, and I was like, what? They replaced us? The image They've is replaced us. Oh, wig. no. Exactly. How could they ever replace us with an abstract wig? Yeah. I mean, seriously, it's ridiculous. But yeah. in any event, I look forward to seeing where that goes. You know, if we can, uh, if we can uh, somehow bring a lawsuit on behalf of animal justice and get some money, well, that would nothing would delight me more than making some money back for that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Well, so I think um, I, I think. Sorry. Um, I I was just going to say I was thinking we should we should get to the reviews because that might explain why I'm hesitating so much to mention my co-host um, and who she is. <laughs> my, my name has been banned from this episode. It's Camille, by it's the been, way. It's, it's been banned. So first of all, we do want to encourage people to uh, continue to give us reviews on iTunes and Stitcher and the other stuff. It's been really nice. We've had a couple of, of reviews and it's been um, um, really useful and obviously it helps attract people to the podcast and so I'm always thankful for those of you when you read some of the reviews and show. I'm going to read um, we got a negative review and I want to read it and I want to talk a little bit about it and the review is titled Camille, 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 Camille and it's a one star review and I want to thank Tuli nine eight seven six five four three two one, which is you know a name I'm not going to repeat often, um, who says the following: I wish I could listen to this podcast, or the topics are very interesting and informative. However, the host says Camille over and over and over while speaking with her, it's irritating and difficult to listen to. 
now. Um, you, I, want to, I, I want to, I want to talk a little bit about this review because like, you're thinking I'm going to like, just, you know, crap all over it, which is actually not true. I'm going to crap all over part of it. Um, and of course I agree that your name can be irritating and difficult to listen to. <laughs> Oops. Sorry. Shot fired. Ouch. Um, ouch. What did I do? So. Yeah, nothing. I'm just irritated. No, seriously, actually, I listen to every episode, and there's no question. I noticed this before the reviewer uh, said anything, so I had noticed that I do that as a bit of a, it's almost a nervous tick, or whatever it is. I don't know. I just tend to. And part of it stems from the fact that you're not here next to me, right? So it's a way of interjecting, and it's like, if you were, in fact, I listen to one of the episodes where we're in person, and I do it much, much less, right? Because I'll just look at you, and then instead of saying it, it's like, you're there. You know what I'm saying? Sure, yeah. 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 So I do want to say that I recognize that's true. And uh, I do. I am trying to control it aside from this week's joke episode where I say it. I would just like point out to the listener two things. Well, the non-listener, apparently, because we're so irritating. Um, Two things. One, like... I'm not a professional, let me be very clear, right? And I don't think you are either co-host of mine. Um, so, like, we're not professionals, and we're doing this for free, and we're putting out a product. So, like, it's not going to be perfect. There's always going to be issues. But the thing that really bugs me, did I miss something? This is the one thing I do take issue with with the listener. I wish I could listen to this podcast because the topics are interesting and informative, and then they criticize me for the use of Camille. Like, Shouldn't that be a three-star review? <laughs> What's with the one star? You like the show. It's informative and interesting, but you destroy our overall rating with one star. As my daughter would say, poo on you, Thule987654321. You could have been a little more generous with the stars, dinged me for the word usage, but fairly pointed out that we're doing a good job. Am I wrong here, uh, miss, other co-host? I don't know. Maybe maybe you just don't get enough criticism. Maybe the fact that I'm a woman, <laughs> and I hate to bring gender <laughs> into this, but I feel like women are constantly crit- critiqued for everything we do, everything we say, the way we say it, the tone of our voice. I'm just kind of used to, to stuff like this and doesn't bother me at all. Uh, maybe, Peter... You just haven't had to experience it that yet. But I'm just I'm just I'm just too sensitive. Too That's sensitive. What it is. Too sensitive. But, I but am honestly, too sensitive. honestly, we appreciate the reviews. We appreciate the feedback. Um, we do. I actually think the feedback, useful. as I said, was fair. I think the feedback is actually quite fair. I just I'm annoyed by the one star, Camille. I'll just come out and say it. Camille, Camille, Camille. Just I was holding it in for so long. Heartbreaking just for the one star. Our, I'm throwing out three of those. Destroys are but almost thankfully, perfect rating. Thankfully, we did get a wonderful uh, review from Latrick, who said they love this podcast, having two people discussing current events who are actually educated on these topics and have the right ideas on animal rights. Can't wait to get a t-shirt. My favorite type of review. Thanks, guys, and please keep it up. We will. Notwithstanding the odd one-star review, we will keep it up. Yes, we will. Thanks to everyone who leaves a review, and if you want to do the same, we would really appreciate it. We also really appreciate everyone who supports us on Patreon. We have a couple new Patreons actually this month, uh, this week, since our last episode was recorded, whatever the time frame is, um, Eva and Artful Productions. And we are we are now getting close to our $200 a month goal. Uh, I know we, thank we you, keep thank saying- Thank you, thank you. Yeah, we, thank you everyone for, for everything you've done to, to get us to that point. 
And, um, you know, every every once in a while, someone's credit card expires and we lose a couple of Patreon supporters. So, you know, we're still trying to get there to our $200 a month goal, which would cover a lot of our production costs. So if you would yeah, like I to feel like, sign Camille, up. I feel like... I feel like we should point out, like, because it, it does seem like, oh, my God, we're not getting anyone. How can we always be short of $200? Because, like, we have gotten more than 200 in the aggregate. Correct, oh, yeah. Camille? It's just that we, we, lose, we lose people. Like, people's commitments run out. So we actually, every time we get new people, it's awesome. And we push back up towards 200 And then we drop down a little when a couple of people's expire and stuff like that. Yeah. So feel free to check us out on Patreon and sign up if you like. Uh, we would love your support. Okay. And, and of course, well, of finally, course. we have to, we cannot go without mentioning our wonderful sponsors at The Grinning Goat. Um, I can tell you um, that I saw in my uh, Facebook feed, because I follow The Grinning Goat, like, I don't know if you caught these, but there was this awesome new baseball shirt that really had me tempted um, to get one, and I, I may still do so. It was this really beautiful um, baseball shirt with like a really nicely stylized uh, vegan logo on the front at the Grinning Goat, and they've got all kinds of other stuff. They are Canada's, you know, uh, a vegan store for clothing and household products at www.grinninggoat.ca, and that's not all, is it? And we, of course, offer you an exclusive discount with the, the use of the, the, the checkout code PAW15. You can get 15% off your order and they ship nationwide. Yes, don't stop supporting the Grinning Goat. We love them. Everybody loves them. Uh, they do a great job. I'm still wearing the boots. They're just getting me through the winter. It's absolutely fantastic. I wear their boots. All right, we should uh, jump into the news. We should jump into the news because we've got. I, I'm. It is weird. Like, um, I'm particularly excited about the news. We only have three topics, and I feel like the three topics are all awesome, and we're going to, like, dig right into them in depth. Yeah, yeah. So starting off with a, an article in the Winnipeg Free Press by our friend Kendra Coulter and uh, co-author um, Brittany Campbell of Brock University, or a graduate of Brock University. They've written a piece in the Winnipeg Free Press about how Manitoba should continue to improve its protection of, of um, animals and the legal regime that it's created. Yeah, and I absolutely loved it. Uh, I read it and I loved it. I think it's exactly dead on the type of criticism we need to do. It sometimes seems like... Um, uh, this is not to knock anybody, but it sometimes seems like a lot of the criticism about animal law issues is about big picture issues. It's about issues like, you know, dairy farming is bad, segue coming later. Sorry, that's not a segue, that's foreshadowing, right? <laughs> dairy <laughs> we'll farming is problematic. Foreshadowing. Um, but like, or, or something along those lines, like big picture issues. And I love this article because it's so detailed and it really digs in. And it talks about the Manitoba regime in particular because Manitoba has a quasi-public regime. And you and I have gone on at length um, on several episodes about the idea um, that Ontario switching from the SPCA-driven model to an, a public regime is a really good thing. And I think what the Manitoba analysis that Kendra and uh, Brittany have performed sort of shows, yes, that's true, but it has flaws in the way it's executed that prevent it from really making a difference. And I think one of those flaws in particular 
is that while there's no question that there is public accountability at the top of the system in the fact that uh, Manitoba's authority uh, for uh, uh, prosecuting and investigating is is clearly affixed um, through the Animal Care Act to the chief veterinary office. Now, I would point out that that is a branch of the Ministry of Agriculture as opposed to a branch of the Ministry of Justice, um, where I would prefer that it be. Absolutely. But in any event... Yeah. In, in any event, the, the bigger problem is, is, is with respect to frontline investigations and who's actually performing them. So one of, the, one of the issues with this is that the animal protection work, while it's clearly publicly funded, there's no, there's no like, clear investigative force that is responsible for implementing. So what you end up having is this sort of network of, um, of over 100 public and private actors. So what happens is the animal protection officers, rather than a specific branch of the ministry, are a combination of government employees uh, hired from the Winnipeg Humane Society or even independent contractors. And um, this leads to all sorts of problems. They point out in the article it leads to inequities in pay, workplace benefits, and labor rights, but it also causes problems for the animals. They have differences in terms of what types of equipment and vehicles they have access to, and that leads to inconsistent levels of service. I can't imagine it's good for the quality of the enforcement that actually takes place either. Like, lack of uniformity in standards is never a good idea for any police force. No, no, that's a, that's really just a basic tenet of law enforcement at this point. Um, I, I think the article is great, too. And I also just want to say thank you to Kendra and to Brittany for writing this. And, and thanks to Kendra for the research that she's been doing in this area. So often, one of the barriers that we run up against in animal law issues is a lack of research and knowledge about the topic. You can bet that governments don't make this information readily available because it would leave them open to criticism. And uh, law enforcement is often notoriously opaque, and it is in this case, too. So sometimes it really depends on scholars who have the bandwidth and sometimes some funding to do research in these areas and come up with the evidence that advocates like us need to support the arguments that we make in, in courts of law and in courts of public opinion. I, I totally agree. I mean, I did uh, similar investigations on these points when I was in New Zealand, and I've never gotten around to like digging into the investigation side of things here. And I'm just like so thrilled to see that there's an academic who's sort of attacking this full time. I think it's absolutely awesome. And uh, it's exactly the type of criticism that needs to be out there. And what I like about it is like, you know, I, it's a, it's the article that I think is 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 really it, it points out the positive and the negative. It's not relentlessly. This is a disaster and this is all falling apart. It's like, no, no, no. Like, it's good that this has happened. It's good that it's a public model, but here's how it can be a lot better. And I think that's the type of thing that uh, I might just capture the eye of people in Manitoba. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. I hope so. The province has been willing to do the right thing before. So hopefully they'll continue wanting to stay, take it a step further and um, be inspired perhaps by some of what's happening in Ontario and other jurisdictions to improve the system. Oh, Camille, sorry, I threw one in there because this is a segue. Please, Thule, please forgive me on that one. Um, are you are you are you thirsty for a morning coffee? You know, I got back at like three a.m. last night from my trip, um, so I could really use a coffee this morning. <laughs> you could use a coffee now. I know I should, if I know you. Do you think you, I should go to Starbucks? 
I was going to say, knowing you, you're going to patronize your local uh, micro brew. But sometimes when you're in a pinch, Camille, you might head over to your local Starbucks. And maybe, maybe there's good reason to patronize Starbucks in future. Let's, uh, let's talk that through. Yeah, there, there might be. So this was some interesting news that hit the media in the last couple of weeks. Starbucks is introducing a ton more plant-based options to their offerings. And the reason they're doing this is because they are stating um, loud and clear for everyone to hear their commitment to sustainability and trying to become, I think they said they wanted to become carbon neutral or at least reduce their environmental impact. Um, by a certain date. And part of that is reducing the amount of dairy that they're, cons- that they're serving to customers because dairy accounts for a huge percentage of their greenhouse gas emissions. And we know that to be the case because dairy is an incredibly carbon intensive product to produce. You got to feed cows a bunch of grain, a bunch of food for a long, long time, for many years. You got to impregnate them. You got to truck them around. You've got to do all these things just to get their mammary secretions. Whereas if you just grew some soybeans or grew some oats and blended them up in a blender with some water, you could get that kind of plant milk for a lot less carbon, a lot less greenhouse gases and much lower environmental impact. So cool in the sense that they're looking at trying to move more toward plant-based, but... There's some buts, right? There's a I mean, lot of they buts. definitely... Yeah, and I, and I just wanted to add, I'll let you get to the buts in a second, but like the, the, note, the notice came with a lot of fanfare. Like it was, it was clearly designed to say Starbucks is trying to do something special. This wasn't like a behind the scenes move. Yeah. And no doubt they were inspired by like the Golden Globe, the SAG Awards, all these award shows recently that have gone plant-based and got tons of media on it. Uh, There's a moment right now that all these, these sort of issues are having. So, so that's cool. But, you know, one piece that appeared in the Chronicle Herald was by a professor at Dalhousie, Stefan or, or Sylvain Charlebois. The headline says Starbucks goes dairy free for the planet, leading a whole bunch of people to share that article saying, oh, my God, Starbucks is ditching dairy. And and I've seen a lot of torqued headlines and a lot of comments on social media to the effect that Starbucks is completely dropping dairy free. And I think this piece played into that. And that's that's not true. That's just that's fake news. Frankly, it's not happening. No. But in, in, yeah, this is one of those, like, I want to I wanna approach this like the writers, uh, Kendra and Brittany of the Manitoba piece, where it's like, like, let's critique both Starbucks and the piece, but also give them some kudos, which I think we've done, correct? I think any statement of this sort and a movement of this sort is positive. I mean, Starbucks is a massive industry. And the fact that they are even going to encourage, though I, I, I guess the, the proof is going to be in the pudding, as it were. I, I'm curious to see what this looks like. Um, but, but at the same time, I have some criticisms like of what Starbucks is doing. Like, for example, why didn't they combine this announcement with their ridiculous, you know, a commitment to remove their ridiculously extravagant profit-inducing costs that they now extort out of you if you want non-dairy milk? Because the costs are ridiculous. It's, is it it's, a 60 it's now cent up, I think premium? It's, I think it's 80, 80 no. in, in Alberta. I think it's 80 or 75 cents or Alberta as a premium. And there is no freaking way that the number of, there's just no way that the number of almond milks or whatever, or soy milks that they get out of one box to perform, you know, uh, a latte or whatever it is you're making, that that adds up to the extra cost for Starbucks. There is absolutely no doubt in my mind that they're profiting by people who want to make the right choice. 
Definitely, definitely. And obviously what they should be doing is selling dairy products at a premium. I mean, we can talk about whether they should be selling dairy products at all, and we'll get to that. But if they want to price the, if they want to send the right price signals to customers to help them make the right choices, obviously they need to price dairy at a much higher rate than the alternatives. Exactly. Like, put your money where your mouth is, Starbucks. And they could have done that immediately. They could have made this announcement and say, we're committed to corporate blah, 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 and all the sustainability of the planet. And to show that, although we're not ready to integrate this new philosophy yet, we're going to immediately abolish all price premiums on these types of alternative milks. Why not? Like, why can't they do that? Can you imagine how many more people would start buying the dairy-free option if the price was the same or less? It would just send a signal like that this so. is what you need to do. But let, could we go further, Camille? Let's go further. Well, let's, let's imagine go further. a different world. Why? Let's, because, let's ask the question, Peter. Why should Starbucks be selling dairy at all? Is there a good reason for it? it no. That is the interesting question to me. It's like, and I was going to say, like, I, like it's... This is not Burger King or McDonald's, right? That's the interesting thing. It's like if if I had to pick a, a chain, a major restaurant chain, right, to say which of these is going to go completely vegan, I mean, am I crazy or is Starbucks not the best choice to do I, it? Like, I think Star- it is. The clientele. Starbucks like- could... They could literally go vegan, right? And and nobody would notice. If you go to a Starbucks window, let's leave aside the the, the, the the few small meal options that they put together, okay? I would guarantee you that 90%, let's let's just guesstimate, okay? 90% of what is sold in their store right now, because most of it's coffee products, right? And once you switch the dairy free option, well, there you go. The rest is baked goods, bagels, things like that. Now, at the moment, very few of those are vegan. But you and I both know that one of the easiest switches, literally, it's been proven by taste test again and again and again, one of the easiest switches is baked goods. Like, we agree, right? Totally, totally. No one can tell the difference. So you, you really just cannot tell the difference between butter and eggs and milk in a baked product versus the vegan alternative. It tastes exactly the same. Same, same with, with donuts, like every all of those things that they serve. Like if you get the right providers, and of course Starbucks has the muscle to create its own provider, like who could do all that, although they tend to buy local anyway. But like the point of the matter is like those are easy switches. I'm not going to sit here at this point in time and tell you, for example, because I think it would be premature still to tell you, I'm not going to say, I don't think you say, Camille, that as much as I like some of the cashew cheese options, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that they're the same taste as cheese. You're not going to do that, are you? Not quite yet. I think they'll get there, but not not today. Or 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 eggs, the same thing. Like the the egg substitutes, they're better, but I'm not going to make that claim. So I'm not going to tell you. And and you know, we could get into burgers and chicken. That's a whole different matter. But I mean, again, like I'm not going to say, okay, you feel a need to serve some uh, this, that, or the other thing in there in your in your products. Like you know, you're a local burrito chain and you want to put cheese on your stuff. I'm not going to tell you that you should go vegan because I could see how you're concerned about taste at the moment. Right? Again. Whatever, everybody's a little different on that. But I'm just saying that, again, 95% of what Starbucks sells could be adopted. So they could make this change that they say they want to make in a way that's really meaningful. And probably, I swear to God, if they didn't advertise it as vegan, nobody would freaking notice. 
Yeah, yeah, I think that's I think that's definitely right for baked goods. And the non-dairy milks these days are often indistinguishable, as you point out. Um, and, you know, they're already announcing, I don't know if you saw this, Peter, but in Canada and the United States, they're being, bringing in a plant-based uh, breakfast patty as well. So they're taking steps there. They are moving wow, in this direction. just like Tim Hortons. Just like Tim... Oh, sorry. Well, that didn't work out well. Oh, my God. Tim Hortons. We, we'll save that for another day, Tim Hortons day, is maybe, so stupid. We'll save that for another day. patty and, I think, botched the roll out of it completely and, and probably had the wrong Me clientele too. for it. So, so that's too. fine. I, but, I think Starbucks will be much better at that. Yeah. So here's a, an interesting non-political advocacy opportunity out there for your listeners. Make sure that you know that Starbucks knows. Sorry. Make sure that Starbucks knows that you want them to go vegan um ask for the vegan alternative milks tell them that you don't want to pay the high price point call them out on their hypocrisy for for charging more for plant-based milks at the same time trying to promote them or better yet write your mp and tell oh no that's this is that that's not appropriate <laughs> come here. on i wasn't on my hobby horse for once <laughs> that's to- that's totally inappropriate here your mp has nothing to do with starbucks but, but this is an important area. I mean, animal justice, you and I, Peter, we're lawyers, we deal with the law, but I kind of see sort of three main major players in society. There is uh, societal attitudes, so what people want, consumer demand. There's the legal aspects of what our laws say. Uh, but then you've also got what corporations are doing. And, and this is an area we no don't question. focus on as much, but there's a huge opportunity for, for advocacy to have a real impact there when corporations just respond to uh, people's shifting demands. They're sort of morally... Um, agnostic in a way, right? They're they're about the the corporate profit motive. They're not about interest groups in the same way that governments have to pander to farmers. If Starbucks decides it's going to introduce all this plant-based stuff, it's because there's market demand and it can just do it. So there's a real opportunity for each of us to make sure companies know what our consumer preferences are. Yeah, absolutely. No question about it. Now, what's, you know, probably my favorite story of the week is... Amazingly came out around the same time. I don't know. It might have just been coincidence. But as Starbucks was tweeting that it is changing or promoting, you know, not changing, but promoting dairy-free as part of its store policy, some other tweets started popping up in my timeline. I don't know if they did in yours, but they certainly did in mine, and they came from the Dairy Farmers of Canada. And the text of those tweets was really interesting. Indeed it was. So here's one tweet that was promoted. It says, caring for our cows. It's what we do and what we love. Putting cows first. That's Canadian dairy farming. And there's a photo of a farming farmer standing um, at night with a crescent moon shining over top of a barn. He's kind of standing in front of the barn. There's no cows in the barn, actually. You can't see any cows in I don't see any image. cows. <laughs> I think the no cows, cows, I think the cows, I think the cows were put first in line for slaughter that night. Oops. Oops. <laughs> Did I say that? Did I say that out loud? Oh, yeah. wow. Caring yeah. for our cows because that, you know, that's, it's cradle to grave in Canadian dairy farming. Literally, they rip them from the cradle and they put them in the grave as quickly as they can. But that is putting cows first. Like, let's be honest about it. I, I don't know about you, um, Camille. Sorry, I'm going to throw one in there. I don't know about you, but if, if 
I don't ever want to be put first the way dairy cows are put first by Canadian dairy farming. <laughs> it's like, I think that would be like the worst thing that would ever happen to me. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's few industries that wreak as much horrible treatment upon animals from every stage of their, their lives for such an extended period of time as, as dairy um, does. The, the animals are kept alive a long, longer than in many other situations where they're grown and, and raised at an astronomical rate and then killed quickly. Dairy cows have to endure years of abuse. Um, and somehow the Dairy Farmers of Canada considers this taking care of cows. So Peter, this series of um, it, tweets, it's just unbelievable. It, it seems to correspond to some new promotional materials they've got up on their website. It says it's only Canadian with Canadian dairy. And Ooh. here's discover the four reasons to buy Canadian milk, buy Canadians a hashtag. Oh, yeah. And it seems like they're trying to capitalize on trade deal issues that have arisen and um, appeal to some sort of sense of nationalism as if anyone really has nationalism about where dairy comes from. But OK. Mm. Anyway, one of, one of their points on the website is, is that we take care of our cows. And there's a photo of a cow with one of those brushes. Maybe some of you have seen oh, it looks videos good with of that these brush. before. Yeah, cows that is, like that brushes. That is one happy cow. It's one happy, happy cow. cow. It's like a circular rotating brush and cows go up and like get their faces scratched with it. Um, mostly I see those kinds of fun, happy videos from cows from sanctuaries. Not really sure how often cows in most dairy barns have an opportunity to access those kinds of fun brushes because they spend most of their lives trudging back and forth from, um, you know, the milk parlor to, to stalls or other areas. But funny enough, you know, I'm shocked, Peter. I'm, I'm just totally shocked. They haven't put any photos of uh, cows from, say, the Chilliwack Dairy Farm uh, cattle sales um, investigation, which revealed just horrific abuse, animals, uh, cows being hung, hung with chains around their necks, beaten with canes and pipes, kicked, stomped on, cows with... Um, mastitis cows with open wounds it's funny that they didn't include any of those images on their website huh yeah it's strange and i i just like I, this sort of stuff just really riles me it's just so ridiculous and and the reason it riles me is like you know just like you I, i'm not a marketer i'm not D dairy farmers of canada obviously like you want to do an ad campaign that says Canadian milk tastes awesome and makes great products, right? And we, we are the, the butter and the milk and the ice cream. I, I have nothing to say to you, okay? Like, do your thing. Like, that's it. And we'll continue to compete for people's souls. And, like, that's the way it is, right? I, I don't deny ice cream tastes great. Like, that from what I remember of it, okay? And, like, that's the way it is. But, like, when you start with the bullshit of putting cows first. It's like, how are you putting the cows first? Your, your, your economic interests come first, second, third, fourth, fifth in every scenario. Always. Like, please, please, please sue me for libel over the term putting cows first. I beg you. Because there is no logical interpretation of that term that can be held up. It's just, it's completely doesn't make any sense. Yeah, yeah. So dairy farmers back at it again. Uh, this is not the first time that they've been called out for false advertising issues. They've been forced to amend marketing materials before for making false claims. They've, uh, we filed complaints against them for all kinds of different things. And I'm sure this won't be the last time that we discuss this issue with the Dairy Farmers of Canada either. 
Well, if the only thing I can say about it, if if that's what they're resorting to, that's uh, that's always a bad sign. And, and I do say, you know, it, it's, Desperation. it's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting. And I think you and I have talked about this before. And I think we talked about it at the conference because I it came up in my animals in the law class. And let's just say, like, there are many issues, right? It's like where 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 change in the in the consumer marketplace is a long way off. Like, you know, we could just throw them out there. Fish you know, eggs, chicken. chicken, like those are a long, long way off. But dairy, like dairy is feeling the bite. Like dairy has gotten the bulk of it. And I say that to my students. I'm like, well, just go look. You don't need me to tell you that. Just go to the supermarket. You know, do you see any egg substitutes? How hard do you have to look to find meat substitutes? But you want to find dairy substitutes. It's in every aisle. Like there is a transformation away that is going on in the dairy sector and, you know, it's going to bite the dairy industry. That's just the reality. Yeah. Yeah. So looking forward to that. That was that was fun. That was fun, wasn't it? We have a exciting main topic for listeners today. We're going to update you on a case we've discussed a little bit before on the show. The Santix case out of Vancouver, which was a dangerous dog case, so-called dangerous dog case. Um, I always like to say the so-called part because oftentimes the dogs are not potentially dangerous, but um, so-called dangerous dog case out of Vancouver that uh, some lawyers and the clients sought leave to appeal the case before the Supreme Court. And... uh, Got some news recently, uh, just in the last couple of weeks, that the Supreme Court is is not uh, going to hear that case. Um, I don't think you and I are particularly surprised at all by that decision, Peter. It didn't seem like the type of case that the Supreme Court would be willing to take on because it didn't really have much of an issue of national importance. The issue was very confined to a local statute in Vancouver, and the Supreme Court likes to take on broader cases that have uh, more of a national character to them, and the results can be more far-reaching than this one seemed like it would be. So, I mean, betting against any case getting leave is always like betting with the house and blackjack. You always have a much better chance of leave being denied than leave being granted. So I think when we got came on the, the podcast and said, you know, this is very unlikely to get leave, um, I think we were betting with the odds in our favor. But I agree with you that I think I said very unlikely because I do, if anybody follows me on Twitter, I actually keep an eye on what cases are coming up for leave. And like, I'm not bad at picking winners. I do pick winners sometimes based on the issue. I recently picked um, two out of three criminal cases that did get leave. I usually only do it for criminal cases. But with this case, it seemed to me the chances were nil. And I say that because, uh, as you pointed out, If this case was about dangerous dogs only, and it was about sort of the interests of dangerous dogs and the balancing the competing questions of how a dog's interest should be represented and in what cases an animal should be put down, I think that would have had ramifications across the country. And I think that's the type of case that maybe would have gotten leave. But as I said, when we looked at this, I read through this case, and it seems to me to be the particular wording of the Vancouver Charter. And as a result, the way in which it's drafted sort of defines the answer. So the idea that anything the Supreme Court said in this case would resonate in other provinces is just false. 
Like they can make a comparison, which I'm sure they tried to do in seeking leave to say, well, look, this puts BC out of alignment with other other jurisdictions. And if I were the Supreme Court, I'd say, well, yes, but that's because of the way your statute has been worded. If you want to change it, go to your legislature. Yeah, I think that was always one of the issues in the case. And and so just to back up a little bit, we won't spend too much time talking about the facts of this case. We'll, we'll link to some articles so you can read up on it if you want. But it involved a dog named Punky, who um, was owned by a woman named Susan Santix in Vancouver. Punky was alleged to have um, bitten and attacked a number of people. And uh, Vancouver city prosecutors decided that they would uh, like to seek a destruction order and, and essentially execute um, Punky. And at every stage of the way, unfortunately, the uh, decision makers, the judicial decision makers, judges, uh, agreed that Punky was a dangerous dog and thought that he should be killed for public safety. So the case went up to the BC Court of Appeal. At that stage, um, an issue arose that wasn't as central to the issue of whether Punky was dangerous. The issue came up as to whether judges had the power to make um, so-called what were they called? Conditional orders, Peter? Is that is that right? Yeah, conditional orders where the dogs are released on conditions instead of being destroyed or killed. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's almost like doggy bail in a way. Uh, they might have to wear a muzzle. They might have to go for training, take some other interim measures to assure public safeties that fall short of killing the dog. And the Which is needless, needless to say, we, 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 something that we approve of. Of course. Like an course. animal justice. Yeah, needless to say. Of course. I mean, we don't have time to get into this too much on this case. We have spoken about dangerous dog cases a little be- bit before, and I think we had an entire episode um, previously. But um, there's a variety of issues associated with dog behavior that have a lot more to do with the uh, guardian of the dog rather than the dog, the dog self. And um, many proven strategies for improving dog behavior that can be quite effective. And so we believe generally that there are ways to manage these cases, protect dogs, protect people that fall short of executing um, animals who may just have had one bad moment. And we don't think that they should be judged on their worst day. And that's a principle I share for human beings. I don't think that's anything particularly shocking. That's just a compassionate perspective. But the issue that came up at the Court of Appeal was whether these conditional orders were, in fact, permissible, just given the wording of the statute. Um, It doesn't really explicitly say that they are um, allowable, but judges, based on some case law, have been um, using them for quite some time. And so the prosecutors at the Court of Appeal uh, attempted to bring that. Well, they've been split for quite some time. Yeah. There have been some, some saying no and some saying yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So the prosecutors uh, at the Court of Appeal decided that they would bring the issue up for decision because they believed that there wasn't actually authority for conditional orders. And the Court of Appeal accepted that argument. And um, that led to some further discussion, let's say, on the topic. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it's an interesting topic. And I'm going to talk a little bit uh, later. I want to talk about what it means for um, for for dogs generally. And I think what 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 this case really tells us. But we, we were both interested and I was particularly interested um, about the fallout when um, when Punky didn't get his day at Canada's highest court. And I think that there were articles coming out um, on the first day when this happened that were sort of 
you know, expressing the point of view from Punky's perspective, his owner's perspective, and uh, his lawyer's perspective, her lawyer's perspective, and sort of, you know, how sad this was, and it's a sad day for animals generally. And then there were some follow-up articles um, um, that sort of discussed what this means for dog owners, and these were in a series of articles uh, pu- uh, published by um, Rebecca Bretter, who's been on this show before. Um, I think there were two or three of them uh, published in a couple of Vancouver uh, magazines and also in iPolitics. And I kind of wanted to discuss these a little bit because um, I I have some disagreements, which I've had in the past with Rebecca about um, what the case means. And I, I say that with, with a lot of respect. I, I certainly respect the work she does on behalf of animals. And she's, of course, entitled to her views. But um, I, I did think that some of the comments um, in this article were 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 troubling to me and portray a different view of how animal law should develop than what I think. Um, and I mean, I'm curious, of course, to hear what you think about it, Camille, but perhaps I'll go first. Yeah, yeah. I mean, go ahead. And we'll share a link to, to some of these writings, of course. There's a piece in the Daily Hive, I think, which may have been the first one that Rebecca published. And um, she's, you know, she's quite critical of, of counsel and the client for bringing the case forward because she feared that it would set a dangerous precedent at the BC Court of Appeal um, and at the Supreme Court level, which, you know, in, in a sense, it did. The The state of the law is, is somewhat less helpful to dogs than it was before. Um, but there's a question of whether it's really fair to criticize somebody who's doing everything that they can to save their beloved dog for bringing the case as far as they possibly can. Yeah, so I've got that's one of my issues as well. Like, I, I just don't think that's fair. Um, I, I read it that way, too. And I felt there was some real criticism directed at the owner and 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 the uh, and the lawyer who brought the case. They had gotten an adverse ruling and they wanted to take it forward. And I, I don't see how you can criticism criticize them for doing it. And that's sort of um, essentially what I read is, well, you shouldn't bring this case forward because it's going to harm other dogs. And I'm like, well, first of all, you don't know that when you're appealing it. And, you know, the fact that uh, Rebecca turned out to be right in this circumstance, it, to me, is not the answer answer, as I'm going to get into in just a moment anyway. But I also think it's just unfair to say, you know, that is the way the law works. You have an adverse decision. You want to try to appeal it forward as far as you can go because the interest is meaningful to you. But what I also find interesting about it is that, you know, as I understand the premise of her article, what she's saying is, and, and I'll just read it so I'm not misquoting anything, what was often missed in the media is that up until the Santix case, British Columbia had 15 years of hard-earned good case law that did allow conditional orders, and this gave us a workable system for defending dogs. And I'm like, okay, well, maybe it did, and maybe it didn't, because the truth of the matter is, the case law has just been told by the BC Court of Appeal that it's all wrong. So effectively, like, that was always a lurking potential in the case. And whether it was a workable system is kind of interesting in and of itself. Because later on in the article, she points out that conditional orders were never routine, a lot of work, knowledge, and creativity only achieved from countless hours of courtroom experience. And research went into arguing for and making these orders. That's how I was able to save all dogs on death rows in my cases. And I'm like, Kudos to you, Rebecca. That's great. But what about the people who can't hire Rebecca Bretter 
or can't afford her. Like, what does that mean for all those people? How is it a workable system if it's taking countless hours to achieve? And if it seems to me, if the problem at its core is the law, I, I don't see how it's not better to have that exposed and put in a position where people can now try to approach this where it belongs in the legislature, because that's the way productivity in animal uh, cases actually occurs. If you're telling me that in Ontario, Saskatchewan and other provinces, including Alberta, uh, death death cases are, are not automatic, but can be negotiated, can be part of conditional orders. It seems to me that everybody should have the benefit of that. And the idea that it can be done only where it's in some sort of, you know, exceptional cases where you have countless hours of time to work on it is not really a system that I think is positive. So I'm just like, I'm troubled by both the premise of the article and the criticism of it. I understand why there's disappointment about the result. And I understand that some dogs are going to be killed as a result. Nonetheless, I don't see how the answer is to keep a bad law in place. There are lots of bad laws in this country, and, and ultimately, it seems to me, we need to make moves to change them. And sometimes that can only happen when, when the negative aspects of the law are fully exposed. I think that's an interesting issue that comes up quite frequently in public interest litigation. Um, this is a recurring theme in, in that particular topic and in animal law issues too. I mean, this, it reminds me in a sense of uh, some of the criticism that, um, you know, you and I and animal justice got, Peter, when we were working on the Bogarts case, which was the constitutional challenge that struck down the Ontario SPCA enforcing animal cruelty laws in Ontario, which, you know, was later reversed by the, BC, the Ontario Court of Appeal. But a lot of people were, were saying, oh, my gosh, this is the worst thing. This is terrible. This is going to mean animals are suffering and no one's going to enforce the laws. And, you know, our perspective was always like, sure, anytime you're doing a, a big case like this or you're bringing litigation forward, there's a risk. There's unquestionably a risk. But the question is, would you be better off, in a sense, blowing up the system and showing and exposing to people the problems with what is going on and the way the law is treating animals than, than just like sitting back on your hands and, and hoping that the system will sort itself out someday and using it the way it exists now? Um, sometimes I really do think that it takes a shock to the system to motivate people to do better and that it's not inconceivable that Vancouver lawmakers or perhaps those at the BC provincial level will start to look at this and consider ways to improve the system. I mean... Punky, unfortunately, was executed. And there were some pretty disturbing stories about Susan Santix attempting to be there with him in his final moments and being told by the shelter staff, no, that's just not possible. I mean, it is possible. They just don't want her to be there for, for whatever reasons, like maybe fear of it being uh, put on social media, whatever. But I say that to, to point out that there was a lot of public attention on this and a lot of people upset about the fate of Punky Santix. And I think that's something that can be translated into meaningful policy change if people apply the right pressure to city councillors and other legislators. I, I, I couldn't agree more. And it's amazing to me how much of this sounds reminiscent of the discussion we had after Bogarts came out. Right. I mean, isn't it the same? Like, it's a very similar discussion. Like, I remember we, we literally had that discussion about how negative a lot of people were. Like, there was like critique coming in on all sides and everybody was like, what's going to happen if the SPCA? This is a devastating result for animals. And I'm like, is it? Is it really? Like, 
Maybe, but time will tell. And and I think, you know, the idea, I, I just, I'm really struggling with the idea that we should hold on to a flawed status quo. That for all I know, it's not clear from the article, that it's like, for all I know, animals were not getting these orders regularly, unless Rebecca was arguing for them. Like that's, I mean, that's a piece I don't know. And maybe that's true or maybe it's not true. I don't know what the answer is, but I, I certainly am, am struggling with the idea that these precedents existed, but they were not actually based on sound law. And as a result, they could be disregarded if judges felt differently about the nature of the case. And as a result, it seems to me, you know, that the, the better course of action has to be to point out the inequity of what this does and point out how it's inconsistent with other provinces and go back to the BC legislature and say, look, we need a better solution that results in a lot of these things. Because I will say one thing, I've read the Santix decision and I didn't get any sense from the BC Court of Appeal that they were against the idea of conditional orders. I just thought they, they said we didn't have the power to give them out. Yeah, I, I, I think that's fair. And there can be arguments about statutory interpretation, whether they, they came up with the right decision in the end, but I don't think it was motivated by an anti-dog sentiment. Most people are pretty pro-dog. So, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad that Rebecca wrote the article in a sense, because it does raise these, these issues that enable us to have a conversation about this. And I think it's important as people like us, like Animal Justice, like Rebecca, uh, like Victoria Shroff and Amber Prince, the lawyers for, for Santix, who do interest uh, public interest litigation, I think it's important that we have these conversations. And, you know, as we're talking, Peter, it occurs to me that this might be a really cool topic for a uh, topic or debate or what have you for the animal law conferences here. For sure. And like, obviously, I, I also wanted to point out that I've spoken to you offline about the issue of dangerous dogs, because quite frankly, I think a lot of the laws in a lot of the provinces are absolutely abysmal. I think the Alberta law, which is all of four paragraphs long, is like is incredibly hard to enforce properly and incredibly hard to interpret. And it leaves so much power to the discretion of individual dog officers, which is very similar to what I read from the Santix case is the case in Vancouver. And I don't think that's a good thing. I don't think when somebody's uh, a beloved, you know, pet slash family member is at stake, that we should just be relying on the discretion of individual animal care officers, because of course, you never know who you're going to get. And I think that's really troublesome. I think we need a more robust system to adjudicate the interests of these animals uh, carefully. And frankly, I would love to see a really good study that looked at the way dangerous dog laws are applied here and abroad and point out a lot of the shortcomings of the laws uh, in Canadian jurisdictions. Yeah. And this goes back to that issue we were talking about earlier about the great work of Kendra Coulter and studying these issues from an academic perspective, this is one of those topics that's just crying out for some evidence gathering and analysis. So maybe we'll see that. PhD uh, students, there you go. Yeah, yeah, hot topics. All right, well, that, that was an interesting discussion. I, I'm glad we had it. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll continue to bring you news on the topic of dangerous dogs. I'm sure it's not the last time that this will come up. And uh, dangerous dog cases really arouse the passions of the public. It's one thing I've noticed. People get very upset about the idea of unfairly executing animals. So I do as think... As they Peter, should. As they should. And I do think that this is one of those issues that's right for legislative change. The public is ready for this and it wouldn't be costly to legislators to do it. Heroes and Zeros. All right, now it's time for everybody's favorite part of the show, Heroes, Heroes and, and Zeros. Zeros. Heroes and zeros. 
Heroes and Zeros. Now, I believe, I'm, I'm going to let you go with the hero so that I can say a few words about the zero. Sure. Okay. Well, uh, the hero this this episode is the Coalition of Animal Protection, um, other organizations, justice-seeking public safety groups in the states who won a huge victory in court in Kansas uh, just last month in January against egg gag laws in that state. And interestingly, Kansas was one of the first states to enact egg gag laws back in the 90s, Peter. This law has been on the book for close to 30 years, books for close to 30 years. Unlike some of the more recent ones that have been challenged in court, they tended to come in within the last decade or so. There was sort of like a a big push by a bunch of like right-wing legislators to get these these egg gag laws in place. Uh, Kansas was enacted far before that and criminalized recording of animal abuse in many situations and including deception to um, access a, a position where one can record animal cruelty on farms. Uh, so it's of particular interest to us here in Ontario at this juncture and anyone in Alberta since Alberta has passed and Ontario is trying to pass egg gag laws here that do substantially the same thing that happened in Kansas. And we can add this now to the the list of the great victories that all those groups in the states have have secured, including the Animal Legal Defense Fund and our friends at PETA too. So there's Kansas, there's Iowa, there's uh, Utah, there's Idaho, uh, a a law was struck down in Wyoming, there's a challenge in North Carolina. so our hero award goes out to those folks for having the tenacity and um, really just staying with it all this time and, and making sure that law is now off the books. Absolutely, yeah, good stuff. Very excited and uh, great work done. They've been they've been having a really good run with ag gag laws down in the U.S. Yeah, and it's great too because. Once they start to fall and judges in other states see the precedent that they've been found to be unconstitutional, including the Ninth Circuit uh, Court, which is uh, one of the most respected appellate courts in the country, it's an easier case to make if you're challenging a new law. You can say, look, all these folks, all these courts have already found gag laws to be unconstitutional. And, uh, you know, I hope that's going to come into play here in Canada, too, although our our Section 2B rights are a little bit different than the uh, free speech rights under the First Amendment in the States. Many of the principles are, are very similar. So we're hoping that it helps not just the folks in the States and the animals in the States, most importantly, who are the subject of cruelty, uh, but that it helps us up here in Canada, too. Fantastic. I love it. Um, R0. Boy, R0. Um, oh, boy. Is- our old friend, um, an old friend. He's never been a zero, I don't think. Uh, I don't think Curtis so. Andrews. Curtis Andrews, noted animal lawyer. And when he calls himself animal lawyer, it means that he works on laws that will, you know, put as many animals through difficult times as possible. He's a farm lawyer, is really what he is. He brought the Bogarts case, I believe, to challenge the OSPCA's authority for very different reasons um, than, say, Animal Justice did. But Curtis has been busy writing about both federal and provincial laws. Some interesting stuff there in Curtis's legal analysis in these columns that are in the Ontario Farmer. Yes, indeed. And the Ontario farmer is always very happy to publish columns or analysis or reports uh, criticizing people who are animal rights activists. Um, I believe you and I and many other people at Animal Justice have been uh, mentioned by name in the Ontario farmer, which is always a point of pride. 
Um, Always an honor. Always never, an honor. Never in a positive way, I might add. I'm not no, that never. That would be never. expected by any of our listeners, I don't think. But no. um, Curtis is back at it again, making sure that people are aware of the huge threat posed by animal activists. And he's written a couple and, of pieces. And, and the best part is like so misstating the law. And in my opinion, completely misunderstanding the way the law already existed, that it's kind of interesting to read through the muddled legal analysis that he's presented. Yeah, it's certainly not my reading of of provincial laws in Ontario. So he's saying in in the first piece, he's got a surprising perspective, uh, believing that under the new PAWS Act, that's Ontario's new Provincial Animal Welfare Services Act, which we have praised as being a good step in the right direction, not perfect, but it makes a public enforcement system. And it has some stronger offense provisions, including making it illegal to put animals at a risk of harm. And Curtis is saying he believes that that could be used to prosecute animal rights people who might be on a farm or in a location where animals are because they might cause a risk of harm to the animals in some way. It's not really clear well, to me what, what he thinks the risk of harm is. There's two arguments going on. So he says there's this new section, section 15 sub 3, right, which featured the usual prohibitions against causing or permitting an animal to be in big stress. And Curtis gets really excited that there's this new provision which prohibits knowingly or recklessly causing an animal to be exposed to an undue risk of distress. And then says, how can this new section protect farmers? There are two ways, says Curtis. The first involves curtailing undercover investigations because activists hired as farmhands and record videos are the same people trying to take care for the animals they later complain are being neglected. And as a result, they should, if they really care about the animals, immediately report any alleged concerns to management and authorities. And they don't do this. And now they should be charged with neglect because of this new section. I mean, it's just, it's so utterly stupid. Like, it's stupid on, like, multiple levels. Multiple. So I'll start with the first, okay? The first is the law hasn't changed at all, like at all. Like the activists, you want to call them that, like could have been charged under the old law. Like there's really like essentially all this happened is there's a new mens rea section that makes it harder to prove causing distress because you have to prove that it's done knowingly or recklessly, whereas the old law and the existing law doesn't require you to do that. So in theory, these activists could have always been charged for permitting the animal to be in distress while they take video, okay? So to begin with, just let me undermine the stupid hypothesis that there's something new going on here, you know, that's really good. There's not. It's utterly ludicrous. There's not. And second of all, like, do you want to do the the second of all, like the obvious critique of why this is so dumb? (laughs) Well, I mean, I think I see a few obvious ones. What's the one you had in mind? Go for it. No, no, you go for it. Go for one. I'll, I'll come back with more. There's there's tons. Okay. Well, I mean, the obvious answer is that it's not the presence of an activist with a camera that's causing this distress to an animal. It's the conditions on the farm that this farm and the farmers are subjecting those animals to. Bingo. 
And of course, bingo number two is that a lot of the times the distress is, is systemic and endemic. And the idea that you should go and report it instantly every time, how are you supposed to do that when the distress that they're reporting is actually just part of the ordinary care under which the animals are being kept? And when the like stress just, is not necessarily illegal, which is the, the case with most standard farming practices, there is an exemption in our animal cruelty laws that says that uh, generally accepted and reasonable farming practices are not distress to animals. So like, well, what distress should be reported? You know, sometimes that line is crossed, but most of the suffering that animals endure is in state sanctioned conditions, essentially, that are accepted by the farming industry themselves. And, you know, the other point I'd make, Peter, about the impracticalities of reporting all this abuse is that this is one of the ways that in the States, egg-gag laws have tried to target people who do undercover investigations. And they've tried to use that as a PR tool to say, oh, you know, we've got no problem with like recording video footage and so on. But if you see abuse, you must report it immediately. Because uh, if you're not doing that, then you're complicit in it. And it, it simplistically sounds kind of right to the public. You kind of think, oh, yeah, of course, abuse should be reported right away. But the bigger issue is that it's an ongoing systemic uh, situation. And if the investigator blows their cover right away, they never get to the broader pattern. They never get to management complicity and abuse. They never get to corporate complicity in it. Yeah, it's absolutely, it's just, it's ludicrous on many levels. It misunderstands. And and first of all, generally speaking, um, when you have uh, safeguarded, you know, guarded uh, 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 properties, the, the tradition in Canadian law is that we don't punish whistleblowers who bring those things to light. I mean, Curtis clearly wants to, and I guess you would in any situation where somebody puts their neck on the line to report illegal activities that are not being monitored in any other way, which is probably why we should turn to his second brilliant, brilliant article, Camille, saying now it's the Fed's turn to step up against activists. And in this one, who he goes, these bills respond to increased incidents of so-called undercover investigations, and we should amend the law now to go further. Number one, here's what he says, Camille. Number one, Something needs to be done to criminalize the harassment, threats, and intimidation against farmers and their families committed by activists. Camille, Camille, we should do that immediately. I've got a suggestion. You ready? What's I'm going to propose three amendments to the criminal code. No, seriously. So he says we need to go after harassment. So I'm going to propose a crime of criminal harassment, number one. Then I'm going to propose a new crime, Camille. I'll, well, let's call it uttering threats. <laughs> and finally, I'm going to propose another third crime, Camille. Let's call it intimidation because something needs to be done to criminalize harassment, threats, and intimidation. Wait. Wait. Don't, don't tell me wait we already minute. have. Do wait. We, do we, what? What, Camille? Is it possible that the code already has these three crimes included in it? Oh. Oh, what? I don't know. Maybe <laughs> Curtis just missed that. Those are the risks, right? Something needs to be done to criminalize harassment, threats, and intimidation. Like, I don't know, three crimes we already have. Yeah. Criminal harassment, uttering threats, and intimidation. And yeah. let me just stress... I am, I am not in favor. I, I am firmly on record as saying that I understand how upset activists get. I don't think they should be involved in criminal harassment, threats, or intimidation. I mean, of that's, course not. I'm a lawyer, and straight up, I am like, that is not my modus operandi. Like, making fun of Curtis Andrews, fair game. But, like, threatening, criminally harassing, or intimidating, absolutely not. Wrong, 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 and I'm not, there's no sarcasm in my voice. That is dead serious. But the idea 
that you have to go on and do that is utterly ludicrous. The report recognized the growing incidence of cyberbullying, intimidation, and threats. Well, you can punish cyberbullying, intimidation, and threats where they reach the criminal level. And that is the way in which we do that. And if Curtis is just talking about lowering the, um, the, uh, the standard for doing that, well, I mean, I don't know. Why? Like, why do we need to do that? I haven't heard anything um, of that that needs to take place. So no. the idea that we need new laws, what he just wants is he wants criminal laws against against um, against, against any that, activists. Yeah, to stop anything. us from talking about the realities of the farming industry, which is, I think, what farmers are trying to get at when they talk about cyberbullying. So th- there's lots of discussion online, on Twitter, on Facebook, on various social media platforms, about the realities of what animals endure right now. And farmers actively participate in those discussions. I can't tell you the number of times I've uh, had farmers, you know, unprovoked just come at me and want to talk about these things. I respond, other people respond, there's discussions that are happening, this is the way civil society evolves, and this is the way it works, and people have these these, these chats. Um, so I think that there that Curtis and others who share his perspective are conflating um, cyberbullying with just exposing the realities of what happens on farms and providing actual information and questioning whether it's a good line of business to be in. And and also like the constant concern that he has. What's really interesting is undercover investigations. That's his biggest thing. Well, like let's leave out pure trespasses. Let's leave out pure trespasses for just a moment, where advocates go on to uh, farms and you know protest and do sit-ins, and let's just leave that out of the equation for just a moment because I think there it raises different issues. But we've talked at all before about undercover investigations, and he's concerned about because it's biosecurity risks, because it's this, that, and the other things. And you can prohibit unauthorized entry by fraud, blah, 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 blah. Well, that's just utter fucking nonsense. It's utter fucking nonsense because the undercover investigators who are going in and doing this, right, they're posing as farmhands. And as a result, like they're complying with the same biosecurity protocols as everybody else's. What Curtis doesn't want is undercover investigations. And he doesn't want them because, as he says in his article, such situations are ripe for manipulation and misrepresentation. Well, let me just say, like in an ideal world, this is going to sound crazy, Camille, right? But you know my position on this. In an ideal world, I don't want undercover activists either. Like, I really, I agree with Curtis. And I guess what I would say to Curtis is, I'll make you a trade. As soon as the federal government puts in a formal force to regulate and inspect unannounced all farms in Canada, then I'm in. Right. Then I'll go in and then we'll say, okay. once we have a fully functioning system by which regulations and inspections take place for the purpose of uh, exploring welfare issues. And I should add, Camille, as an obvious, you know, that would be housed in the Department of Justice rather than the Department of Agriculture. Oh, yeah. Then 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 then. Uh, maybe we'll be in business. But until that time, the idea that undercover activists should not be in, this is just Curtis's way of saying what a lot of the industry says, which is stay the fuck out of our business. That's what they want. And I, I don't think that's fair given the system we have because every time investigators get in, it's just amazing how many times they manage to capture abuses. Eh? I know they're, I know, I know, Curtis, those are all just rogue operators that should be stopped. And I, I know every time you see bad conditions, that's just a bad example that needs to be corrected. But man, it's amazing how often they capture stuff. Yeah, like every single time. It's astounding. Anyway. 
So that's a well-deserved Boy, we went on zero on that of one. an article. Yeah. Zero of an article. Zero Oof. of a couple articles uh, uh, this episode. Absolutely. That was fun. That that felt like we got a lot off our chests there. Uh, um, you, you person, you. I've, I've, I've slipped a couple of times. But I would say, without having done a study, that my use of your name has gone down by 48% in this episode. So I'm Feels pleased. more like 95%, but, but hey, cool. I did. I did keep it down, didn't I? I was very pleased. So as I said, maybe Tori89764321 will come back and say, wow, good job. I will give you a three-star review next time. <laughs> well, on that, note, on that note, it's been good to be back. And we look forward to the next episode. Bye, everyone. We'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in today. We'd love to ask you to subscribe to the Pod and Order podcast using Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or your other favorite podcatcher. Also, please leave a rating because it helps more people find the show. And if you can, please tell other listeners to share the podcast so more people can hear us. You can also consider supporting us on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash pot and order if you like what you hear. You can find me on Twitter at, at Peter Sankoff or at my website, petersankoff.com. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Camille Labchuk, that's L-A-B-C-H-U-K. And we always enjoy Twitter conversations about the show or any other animal law or political topics. And finally, we'd like to thank our producer, Shannon Milling. See you next time on Paw and Order. For more great iRaw podcasts, visit iRawPod.com. That's I-R-O-A-R-P-O-D.com. Ah!